Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Overrun. I'm Dan Schwester. I'm Anna Ryan. Uh, Ed's on vacation in Antigua Medical School. And uh, today we're... <laughs> I don't know if you call that a vacation. I'm calling it a vacation. Sure. Because uh, he left me with all the stuff to do on the show. When Ed hears this, I hope he's holding a coconut. He just throws it across the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, so today we're, uh, we've got a, a special interview. Um, we're going to go from the medical legal side of things today. We're with Margaret Keevney. Uh, Margaret's a former EMT and paramedic who went to law school and uh, is now a partner at Keevney and Strieger Law Firm. Uh, and they do provide legal services to EMS providers. So Margaret, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. That's great. Uh, we want to talk about uh, some things that came up in our state, but uh, this is a phenomena that's coming around the nation. Um, New Jersey's recently adopted a uh, law called the Medical Aid in Dying Act. Um, it's got some Im interesting implications for uh, EMS clinicians in our state. Uh, there are other states. Uh, if you listen to us in Vermont, Oregon, uh, some other places are going to be adopting this in the near future. Or it's already a, have. Or already have. And it's a new way of looking at how EMS deals with end of life. So do you want to kind of take us through that? And Sure. Well, like many laws having to do with uh, health care, <laughs> the uh, the laws are written with not really thinking too much about EMS being involved in it. So the majority of the New Jersey medical aid in dying law has to do with who's eligible for it, what's the process uh, before you can do it, how are the medications prescribed, prescribed. But there are a couple of things that are important for EMTs and paramedics to know. So the New Jersey law went into effect on August 1st of this year, 2019. And it was challenged almost immediately. And so the, within the last two or three weeks, the Supreme Court of New Jersey said, no, this, this law will go into effect. There, so there's an ongoing lawsuit, and the court has said, but in the meanwhile, it can go into effect. So we may see calls from patients or families of patients who have gone through the process and gotten uh, the legal permission for their physician to prescribe medication that will end their lives. In the law, it says that the doctors are supposed to recommend to the patients that they not take this medication either when they are alone or in a public place. But the law does not Fair require enough. it. So where we might be called would be, for example, say someone decides to end their life and a, you know, a family member or a neighbor finds them pulseless and apneic may call 911 not knowing what actually happened and that's why they want them to have someone with them okay so people will call this an assisted suicide law is that technically correct or is it a little bit more of the more nuanced the the law specifically says that this is not to be considered suicide or assisted suicide or homicide and one of the reasons that's important is for insurance reasons, for charging family members. This is meant to be sanctioned by the state. Okay. And the, the other time that we might see it is if someone doesn't take their doctor's advice and decides to end their lives in a public place. I was just going to say that. There's like a whole scenario that runs in my head where like you're like shopping randomly after you take a whole bunch of benzos and like all of a sudden you got like a frozen chicken on the ground and a human. Uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, I would kind of think more of the lawn chair at the beach at sunrise, but... 
That's okay. my ideal. You do I don't you. I don't necessarily know if I would like take a bunch of pills and then go to ShopRite. But the thanks but ShopRite, here we sorry. Are. <laughs> but yes, you may want to see that sunrise one more time. Yeah. At a re at a large supermarket chain somewhere in the region. We're the frozen section. <laughs> Moving on. So it seems this is to not make a sense. <laughs> So it me- it seems to make sense that if you wanted to end your life and you went through the trouble of getting physician to prescribe these meds to you, that you would also make sure you had to do not resuscitate. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. But just because something makes sense doesn't mean that everyone will do it. So in the event that you come upon someone, you may not know that that's why they died, that that's the medications that they took. Right. And okay. you may not know whether or not they have a do not resuscitate order. So the important part for EMS providers is you come upon a patient, you treat the patient that you can see that and, f- and learn what you can learn. But if you don't know that the person does or does not have a DNR and you don't know that they've just um, taken medication on purpose to end their lives pursuant to this law, you just got to do what the right thing to do is, as you would with anyone. That's a good point. You know, people talk about doing the right thing. And, you know, we, we kind of get on this with the show. I mean, heck, we have stickers out there saying do better and hashtag do better. And the idea is we want to do the right thing for our patients. And I think end of life is where we get in a lot of problems where we get mixed up with this. I mean, I can see this law causing issues, um, DNRs and um, post rules, you know, laws and things like that. They're really not they haven't really gotten EMS as stakeholders in this. And there is a lot of misconceptions out there. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of states have done things. New Jersey is one of them. I know that New York has similar laws where or similar processes where they are thinking about EMS and they're including education for EMS providers. Yeah, it's basically an add-on. And we think that if someone has a do not resuscitate order, no one's going to call us, but it happens all the time. Yeah, it's more common than people think. And because, you know, for a variety of reasons, you know, family members get upset, they get stressed out. Where's their first, you know, the, the maybe the hospice nurse isn't picking up or she's not answering the page. And uh, I know I'm dating myself with paging, but, um, Gross. you know, this is a... This is a this is a issue and we're the ones there to clean it up. So is there a good framework? Are there any suggestions you have for clinicians out there when we're dealing with these different things? Like what you know, one of the things that I always hear is, you know, and and I've been on scenes where it's happened. um, You'll have you'll get on scene and, you know, they'll be doing somebody's doing CPR and the family members there and is going, don't that's not what they wanted. They 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 have a living will or they have, you know, this and, you know, the the BLS provider or whoever's on scene is like, look, if I don't have the paper in front of me, I'm not doing it. I think there's two questions there. One is we want to honor the patient's wishes. And then the other thing is independently as clinicians, we need to determine is is this a survivable event or is the appropriate medical treatment for this patient pronouncement? So whether or not the patient has signed any documents, we want to resuscitate the people who we can resuscitate and not necessarily impose on patients that have no, you know, an unwitnessed arrest since last night uh, with the person who has a terminal illness and the family member hasn't checked on them in 12 hours. Uh, cert- at a certain point, 
no matter what we do, we're not going to make a difference. And we need to take that into consideration, just like physicians all the time make decisions that I'm not going to give this medication because I know that it won't help whatever this patient's medical condition is. But then the second part is what would the patient want? And we've created all these laws saying you can sign these documents, but it's not perfect. And mm -hmm. unlike TV, most of the time the person in the room with the person who has just died is not uh, rubbing their palms together thinking about, um, I killed them and now I'm going to get the insurance money. So I think if you've got a patient who's got a terminal illness that has a family member who has called 911 and says, they have a do not resuscitate order, they didn't want to be resuscitated, and you're looking at a patient who is probably, it's not a survivable event, uh, taking all of those things into consideration, a, an educated and experienced provider can make the call that this is not the standard of care in this situation. Let's go back to the idea that the education is something that we have to like kind of stem out from. An educated provider constitutes what by your standard? Well, I'd like to say it's a person who's finished their class and received certification, but that's not necessarily true because we don't spend much time, if at all, talking about the context of coming upon a patient who's pulseless and ap apneic. We're taught how to, how to uh, treat it, how to react to it, but not how to evaluate the appropriateness of that treatment or the fact that you know, in, you know, in my opinion, once you've gotten there to a patient who has died, your patient is now the family member who's bereft and doesn't know what to do and doesn't yes, know how to react preach. to that. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I, you see that a lot. You know, uh, you know, you just you finish up, you walk out and there's you just you don't make you see people who don't make eye contact. They just walk out the door mm -hmm. and it's like oh, somebody else's problem. Now I'm a lifesaver. Well, that's the that's yeah. the that's the detachment that we teach in education is not that there's. Uh, an importance in actual care for the scene but we are and I've said it in other episodes I'll say it again it's the tox toxic heroism I'm the lifesaver I've done my thing it didn't work I'm out of here mm -hmm. that's it <laughs> so the family doesn't matter the neighbors don't matter I mean the neighbors if they're related I guess they matter but nothing else matters except either my attempt or what we would consider a failed attempt well and, and think about it whether it's delivering a baby resuscitating someone, rescuing someone from a weird situation, when we get the opportunity to have patients give feedback and they tell us, wow, you were so important to me, you changed my life, you saved me, the way that you comforted me on the way to the hospital was wonderful. We know that patients pay attention to what we do and how we treat them. So it would be ridiculous to think that they're not also paying attention when we pronounce their loved one and, you know, clean up and walk out. Yeah. That's having an effect on them as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, this is, this is funny cause we're, you know, we're moving in this age of evidence-based medicine and, you know, it always used to be a very subjective assessment as to what's a survivable, what's non-survivable. And we're now starting to see, and we'll link to these in the show notes, that we actually do have objective criteria that we can apply and say, look, the statistics show, the studies show that a patient who meets these criteria is non-survivable. Um, for example, patient with an unknown downtime, no bystander CPR, AED was applied, no shock advised. We get a ALS gets on scene and they're asystolic. That is virtually 100% fatal. That is an end of that is the end of life. That is not a viable resuscitation. And 
And that's where education is so important because if you know those things and then you can take that along with your assessment at the time and you can make a determination of that, that's good faith. You're acting in good faith that I have no intervention I can do that is going to make any changes, which is completely different from it's almost the end of shift. I really want to go home, so I'm going to pronounce this person and walk out. Ooh. We make a decision in good faith based on putting the patient's interest first. And when that happens, if the decision is don't resuscitate, pronounce, terminate resuscitative efforts, then that's appropriate and we have immunity for that. So that if the patient's family comes back later and says, but we wanted you to do everything, well, I operated in good faith within the standard of care. If you just decide, I don't think this person's life would be worth living, substituting your own opinion about what makes life worth living, if we substitute our opinions for the patients, we're not operating in the best interest of the patient. So that might be bad faith. So the same action in two different circumstances by two different EMTs can have um, the, the same out, outcome, but it might be different. So it depends on your ethics. What, what it, it were, depends. What yes, were your ethics the at creed. the time of <laughs> the decision? Were your, I, I like talking, um, one of the things that I love in this world that, you know, FOMED's gotten us into is... Um, Somebody that I've quoted before, a guy named John Hines, who was a physician in Ireland, um, you know, emergency physician. And he always talks about is your intent. He he did talk about um, are your intentions honorable? What are you doing this for? Are you doing the procedure because you really believe that it's going to be the best thing for the patient or are you being he would call them a wanker Mm -hmm. and uh, say, are you just doing this because you can do it? Right. Do I need practice? And I think there's a difference there. And, and I'm doing this for my practice or am I doing this because I do believe that it is what the patient needs. Yeah, that's huge. Let's yeah. apply that too to the actual Aiden dying then. My mm-hmm. opinion on what Aiden dying is, is this is the patient's wishes. They should like, dictate how they end their life after suffering. Like this is, this is a totally acceptable law in my eyes. But there are people in the field who would look at this and say, well, suicide is an unnatural act this is not you know the cancer didn't kill you you're killing yourself therefore i have the right to intervene so is this more of an ethical problem or are we looking at a legal problem i don't think that you can have a question that doesn't have both a legal and an ethical side oh good answer the the law (laughs) is what the lawmakers and the regulators and the judges have decided the law is Mm -hmm. without regard to what the ethics of the situation is. They're always trying to follow public policy, but people have different ethics. For example, the in the New Jersey law, there was a physician who said, I, it would be against my religion and my, my belief in what's right for me to even refer a patient who requested this to another doctor who will do it. The law is- Yeah, that was a development in this. Yes. Yeah. Someone did file, I believe, a lawsuit that said, I, I, have, an, I have a religious- Right. Opposition to this. So no matter what, there are going to be ethics involved in it. And it's really the people who sponsor legislation and the people who vote on legislation that determine, I think, that my ethics support that this should be law. But then you have the whole thing of our personal ethics. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of people out there. There are going to be patients' families. They're going to be our partners who say, no, life is sacred. Absolutely everything has to be done. And there are going to be people who said life is sacred, so we shouldn't do things that aren't forwarding life. So depending on how you look at it, it's uh, 
differing minds will have differing evaluations of whether something is ethical or not and that's where good faith comes in if you are acting in good faith and what i said before i don't want to imply that we should just decide to leave anybody who calls 911 uh, you know just leave them and not try cpr on them but uh if we think that we can resuscitate that person or we just don't have enough information to know for sure uh the law says if you act with good faith whether you resuscitate someone or decline to resuscitate someone, you're going to be immune from liability under the law. I'm only licensed in a couple of states, so if I'm not licensed in your state, I, I can't tell you if that's what your law says, but it probably does. Or something close to that. So let's talk about, you know, while we're on this, let's talk about the idea that we need to be better educated in end-of-life issues. And do you think there's a role for paramedics in palliative care and hospice? I think that would be great without having the hospice nurse, nurses marching with torches and pit, pitchforks <laughs> well, no, on my house. No, I don't think so. Just kidding. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, absolutely. Un- until we get to the part where there's a team of hospice nurses out there driving around in, in vehicles ready to do a split second response, EMS is always going to fill that gap between when you need the hospice nurse and when the hospice nurse can actually be there. Right. And it doesn't make any sense for us to not know what we should be doing there. All right. There's, I always thought there should be more hand in hand involvement with us and them because we do overlap and you know, their problems are our issues and our issues are sometimes their issues. And it's, it's, there isn't enough communication on both sides. And I think patients are, and patients, families, I think suffer for it. Yeah. There's nothing that would require a hospice nurse to know even what an EMT or a paramedic is. And typically we, they don't. Whenever right, I yeah. have, like, whenever I've walked into a room and I've had to pronounce a hospice patient, it's wh- wh- who gave you the authority? Right. Actually, a few people. <laughs> so, so what it's would funny be you great say that. <laughs> is if we could find one of these associations of hospices and hospice nurses and go to their annual meeting and offer to do a whole presentation on what's the role of EMS in outpatient hospice. I think it actually. Let's extend on that. We should, you know educate the providers on what we do as far as like a response goes but we should also offer the uh the families some kind of education of what it means to call 911 for a dying patient because that's my other problem is typically the patient's family will call 911 because the, fa- the 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 patient has made a strange noise that they interpret as being in pain or there's a weird smell coming off of them and they didn't expect that like no one actually even if they are te- like educated like on the surface right but like when the Mm -hmm. orders are written there's never like an actual like in-depth like this is what dying is going to look like so when this happens you can be scared of it and here's who you're going to call and this is how this is going to happen or you can just call the hospice nurse and the problem is that if we haven't been educated on this is what dying looks like they call us and we just make things worse we we should whether it's in initial education or in continuing ed Mm-hmm. We should know what terminal illness is, what it looks like, what yeah. what do various, uh, you know, does cancer look like this and MS look like that and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, the end of life issues that come up in, in various diagnoses. Yeah, and, and I think we even need to define what a terminal illness is because for me, I mean, and a lot of people you see terminal illness, we think cancer. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily it. End stage renal, uh, cardio, you know, cardiac issues, uh, end stage pulmonary, right? Transplant, transplant candidates who are not transplant candidates. All of these people 
are in the dying process and we don't get enough education as to what that is because we just think, oh, this is somebody who we all know the, you know, stage four with Mets. That's what we equate it as. And it's not we we think every other thing is fixable. And the other thing is we don't really take into consideration in pre-hospital emergency care what's what are goals of care that's that's a nursing education thing goals of care and for someone who is going to uh, have a pulsed or in some states it's called a mulsed or a um, a do not resuscitate order one of the things that the providers the attending physician will talk about is is what are the goals of care and sometimes it's avoid pain Mm-hmm. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's keep me mobile as long as I can. I know I'm going to end up dying in bed, but I want to go to physical therapy. It's not going to make me stronger. It's not going to make me better. It's but it is going to make me able to continue to walk or use the wheelchair less. And or that, I enjoy it. Yeah, and that and that is enjoyment of life. There was there was one example I heard in a an end of life speech where they said this guy's goals were two things. He wanted to survive to see his team win the Super Bowl. And he wanted to eat as much ice cream as possible. Those are, that second goal spoke to my soul just now. <laughs> I want to eat as much ice cream as possible. But that's putting a lot of pressure on that team. I'm just saying. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. But but yeah, so you have people at the end of life who, who want to smoke. They got in the situation they are because of years and years of smoking. And they've been good. But now they just, I just want to smoke because I enjoy it. And that's terrible. I mean, would you let someone smoke in the back of the ambulance? No, of course not. But... Those are people who in in their condition may, you know, walk away from where the oxygen is and have a cigarette and it's not healthy. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about goals of care. Yeah, I think I'd I'd let I'd let a patient do that. That's the thing. Define health. This person just keep them away from the oxygen here. Fire, fire up a heater. Have fun. (laughs) So so that is an important thing for us when we're on scene to ask, what are the goals of care? Mm -hmm. Because that is going to help you focus on what's important to the patient, which is ultimately what it's all about. So go into more detail on pulsts and mulse. We've, we've heard these things. They're out there. You know, people tweet about them. Uh, I don't think anybody really truly understands them unless they're the ones that kind of have devised these things. Um, take us through them. Wh- what are the per- pearls and pitfalls of them? What do we need to be looking for? How can they help us? Well, one of the things that a pulse is, is a form that has a place for the physician and the patient, if that's what the patient chooses, to have a do not resuscitate order. Okay. But people can have pulses that say do everything. Okay. And the pulse is a is a nationwide effort. You know, organizations that have been spending years trying to get these laws introduced into state legislatures, and it stands for either medical orders for life sustaining treatment or practitioner or physician orders for life sustaining treatment, and it's meant to ans- answer the question, what do you want to do? when you think you have less than six months to live. And it's actually when two physicians certify that you probably have less than six months to live, which of course we know that doctors don't know how much longer you're going to live. Yeah. So there are people who have had these for, you know, 18 months because for for years, because the doctor was wrong and, and it's not, it's not something that they can predict. So you have talked with your physician and your family about what your prognosis, what, 
options do you have for treatment? What options do you have for palliative care? And what are your, and the first thing up there is what are your goals of care? So you and your doctor agree on what your goals of care are. There's a section on there, and um, I was on the committee that did the New Jersey Pulse, and we had, oh, I want to say 17 people in the room, so the document's a compromise. But if you're in New Jersey, right in the middle of that bright green document on page one is a star of life. You go there, and it tells you, resuscitate, don't resuscitate, allow natural death, intubate, and ventilate, or don't intubate and ventilate. So... You, it tells you what you need to do. And then it also says whether you want to, you as the patient, want to assign someone to be able to change it if the situation changes. And it's got all the information about who that person is. And that is most helpful if you see it before the patient stops breathing. But that's not always what happens. Sure. So one of my big things with this is I would love to see uh, agencies that know what their primary area is and know where the residential facilities and the long-term care facilities are, go in and invite patients to give the nursing home permission to just fax those things over now so that we know when we get a call to your bed whether or not you have this. Yeah, that would be a great thing in the CAD. Like, hey, listen, you guys are going to bed 302B. That That's Mrs. Smith, and she doesn't want to be intubated, and she's totally good with that. Right. That would, that would be very nice to not have that pressure. Totally. Especially 3 o'clock in the morning when everyone's already fuzzy-brained, mm-hmm. yeah. and the nurse on doesn't have the DON's keys to the cabinet, and you know, there's no access to everybody else's. Because these things are never, it. let's be honest, these things are never where they need to no. be. No, and especially in like one of those situations where the staff finds someone who's unconscious, unresponsive, apneic, all that. I've never walked into a facility, and this doesn't say that like all facilities are either good or bad. It just there's a certain level of panic that happens when someone dies. Right. Right. Yeah. No matter how used to it they get. Yeah. There's Stress. always there's always one or two nurses running around and they're doing the code, and then there's someone else who's getting paperwork, and there's someone else who's trying to dictate, and there's someone else who's trying to suction, and we're working the AED. It's like, we get it. There's chaos. Just give it to us beforehand. Yeah. Right. And if we know that, we're not going to treat a live patient any different. But we are going to know that attempting to resuscitate the patient is just not on our list of things that we're going to be doing today. I think that's something we should cover in like standard of education, too. Like if we're going to do an initial education, here's the thing. You're going to have something before you walk into a facility. It doesn't change your approach. It just gives you extra information. And, And that's one of the things we... In one survey I looked at, less than 30% of the pre-hospital providers said they had received any training in do not resuscitate end-of-life issues. And even the ones who did probably don't remember it. That's astonishing. I I mean, it's it's probably 15 minutes in one of your classes. In, in the old way. I know no, there no, are no. classes who do a better job of that. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that there isn't. It's just one of those things that like raises my blood pressure up. Mm-hmm. Is that if you're if you're being called to help the living and the dying, you have yes. to know the process that goes behind people's choices and how they dictate how they live and die. Like that's not it's not fair to the provider. No, to, the new to not tell them. Yeah, yeah. especially to the right. new ones. If I'm gonna introduce a new EMT uh EMT now uh, to the field and say, by the way, here's some paperwork that we covered in the very beginning of your class. Good luck. Mm-hmm. That's not cool. No. And in addition to terminal illness, I think part of that education has to talk about behavioral health, people with developmental yes. disabilities, people in group homes, because it's not automatic that if you have some kind of developmental disability that you can't understand 
your healthcare decision or that you can't make your own. Totally. No, I think that's a huge point. Yeah, I mean, there's advocates out there, but like most most people who have some kind of developmental dis- disability are cognitive. They can yeah. they still understand what's going on around them. Of course, they have the right to dictate oh. what's going on. And unfortunately, especially if you have a disability that is visible. Mm-hmm. So if you look, many people I don't know if it's many people or all people with Down syndrome look different, and you should never assume based on that 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 person has any way has a life different than yours. Exactly. They they live by themselves. They could have kids. They make their own decisions. So you shouldn't be looking for somebody else to make that person's decision. Yeah. But. There are certainly times when you need to be looking to someone else because that a person can't make that decision. So you need to determine that right away so that you don't make a judgment that this person can't make a do not resuscitate decision on themselves uh, because I think they have behavioral or mental health issues. That's, mm-hmm. you know, that is a, a bad uh, stereotype to have. And in addition to training people in hospice as to what EMS is we also have to train people in EMS as to what hospice is what's palliative care and a a big one is do we understand the psychological effects of chronic pain Uh, we were talking earlier before the show about um, substituting people's judgment and I think that's a big one if you've been in chronic pain for 20 years and you welcome death because finally the pain will stop. It doesn't mean you're suicidal. No. But you are also going to be very, very angry if you knew that you were finally escaping it and some EMT who wanted to save your life brings you back so that you can be in continued chronic pain. Right. That changes the well, way that you look at rule, things. I think as a rule, you know, we, and this is a whole other episode, I think we do a garbage job with chronic pain and pain management outside of yeah. trauma care. You know, I, I think we as clinicians do a terrible job of it as a, as a I rule. I never understood why like everyone gets like so uppity about like giving pain meds. Like at the, in like the hospice sense of things, if you call me and they're like, well, this person's on their way out. Yada, yada, I'll give you whatever morphine you want. Because I'm honestly, not afraid of you getting addicted. No, I've, I've done all, it. I've done it. Getting... I've called I've called my medical control physician and said, hey, look, here's the situation. Here's what we got. We're going to take them into the hospital because the support system might not be there, but Hey, on the way, can Mm -hmm. I do this and this and can I keep them comfortable? And the granted I've done it less than five times, but every time the physicians were like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I'm not worried about the committing, getting addicted. This is a humane thing to do. And honestly, I don't get a, I don't don't get a shift bonus at the end of my night for keeping my fentanyl. Right. Like just, just give the drug enough. And, And, as long as it's within our scope of practice yeah. and with the doctor's order, if it's required, yeah, whatever we can do to help the patient. And unfortunately, so many things that happen at the end of life, we're hurting the patient. We're, yeah. uh, you know, we're supposed to do no harm. But unless we're trained at, as to what harm is, what does harm look like and what does patient care look like, um, we could do harm without even knowing it. Okay, so let's while we're on this, let's talk talk about another situation. Let's say that the person has done everything, has done their diligence, got a pulse or a DNR order, everything's there and everything's in order, and we show up on scene, and the fa- family member, proxy, whoever it is on scene, is no, I don't care. You have to do everything for this patient. Where does that put us? So that so that's a great question. The 
the way you have to think in order to answer that question is what does the patient want? Because it is the patient's needs and the patient's desire that come first. And depending on the document that the patient decided to sign and what state they are in, there may actually be something on the pulse or on the do not resuscitate order that says, and especially if we're talking about an advanced directive, that says, in addition to telling you in this piece of paper that I don't want to be resuscitated, uh, I also have appointed someone to be my healthcare proxy or whatever word the state uses for that. So look for a piece of paper where they say, I give this other person the right to change this document. I give them the right to make a decision other than the one that I've made. Mm -hmm. Because people will do that. They'll say, well, I don't know what the situation is going to be. I think I know what I want. But if something comes up and the person I've appointed said, no, she definitely wouldn't have said yes to that. They get to make the decision. But if there's no document that names another person, you can't assume that the other person has the ability to change that. And that is a lot where judgment comes in because you have to honor what the patient wanted if you know what the patient wanted. But depending on the level of being armed of the people in the room with you, maybe the way that you react to that is make sure that you secure the scene and that you protect the safety of yourself and your partner. And that may be saying, okay, we'll do it, and going out to the ambulance and driving away. Although that might not be what the patient wanted, you do have to um, You have to defuse a potentially hostile situation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Is it a good idea to kind of take somebody aside? And I've seen this happen um, where, hey, listen, I know you're upset. And I know this is a terrible thing. Do you understand what you're asking? Do you understand the consequences of it? Let me explain this. We are going to put a machine on their chest that's going to compress it three inches, 100 times a minute. It's going to break ribs. It's going to break the sternum. It's going to cause bruising. It's going to cause pneumothoraces. We're going to stick a tube down their throat. We're going to, put a, we're going to drill a needle into their bone marrow. Do you understand what this is going to do? And do you understand that the chances of them coming back to being the person you knew is very low? Is that is that something that's a, that's an option? Not only is it an option, if you've definitely got a person who's been authorized by the patient to make decisions for them, that's the only way you can get informed consent or informed refusal. They have to know what the options are. They have to know what is treatment going to look like, what is it going to do, and what happens if we if we don't treat the patient. So, yeah, that goes back to most of the time patients who um, are in arrest can't make a decision but if they've appointed a third party to do it that's who we have that conversation with okay and i think often i hear on scenes you know well we're doing everything that we can maybe they don't want that and we you know have you ever been in a situation where the cop is talking to the family as you do cpr on an unwitnessed arrest uh with lividity and Everybody knows this patient is going to be pronounced, Mm -hmm. but the the other person doesn't want to make the family feel bad or doesn't want to be the bearer of bad news and goes, you know, well, we're doing everything that we can. Well, you know, don't worry. These guys are really good. And Mm. what you want to say is, you know, this this person has died and let's get you used to that idea. And let's because they can't make a decision if they don't realize because on TV, CPR is an intervention that works a lot. 
all the time. Oh, it always works. So except when it doesn't. <laughs> right, except when it would be dramatically right. Uh, Consider the, the character work arc for the plot. Right. Yeah. So, so that is another thing. A lot of people they see you intervening and they don't know. I think more and more people know what CPR is because we're going out there and training people on mm-hmm. recognizing when people need it. But even so, uh, people, if if you're not honest with them that this person's heart has stopped and we're going to try to start it again, uh, but you know they're very very sick and this may be the end, then people may be making decisions. Well, I don't, and here's the big one. I don't want to think for the rest of my life that they could have been saved, but oh, I made I, I made the decision to, yeah, you know. That's, but, that's, no, that is, uh, they need to know exactly what it is because if the patient can be saved, if it's a healthy person who has just been electrocuted. Different story. Uh, yeah. Totally different story. And we know that, but I mean, does But also family? the likelihood that that person's going to have any kind of advanced directive is slim to nothing. That's true. What about mm. the, like, and this is a lot of questions that I get when I, when I run an EMT class, is once we hit a pulse, there's a lot of uh, talk about how a pulse overrides all other orders. And then we get a little bit bogged down as to whether or not there is a proxy that can change the pulse because it overrides. Is that right. still a thing? So again, depending on state law, but in general... The pulsed can say, I identify this other person who, if they conflict with this document, you should listen to them. The patient themselves, if when you come upon the patient, they are alert, they can say, hey, I have a pulse, but I changed my mind. Yeah. Do, do everything. They can do that, and then you just disregard it. I mean, you document it well, but you disregard it. Sure. And uh, the uh, the other thing is, so we've got, um, I've identified another person, I've changed my mind, or I've revoked it. So if you've got a pulse document that's been ripped up or void has been written on it, it is reasonable in good faith. You can rely on the fact that that has been revoked. Right. Because most of the law about the communication of whether it's been revoked is in the context of meeting with your treating physician or the nursing staff wherever you live, not with EMS. So we're probably not going to be present if something is revoked. And the reason that the laws always grant immunity for good faith action is because there is no way that you coming upon the scene, you know, in 15 seconds need to make the right decision. There, there is no way you're going to have all of the information. And it may happen that after you make the decision you need to be to make about treat or not treat, that someone's going to go, oh, look, no, this was the old one. The new one says something different. Right. Right. And that happens, too, from the other side. I mean, I've I've participated in resuscitations where, unfortunately, we got a pulse back and, you know, the family's at the hospital. And like he had a DNR and we're like, or they had a DNR. And you're like, <gasps> whoops. But again, the sequela of that is you're you acted in good faith. There wasn't anything there. There wasn't anything you did that was out of your scope or wrong or illegal. It's just bad communication. The patient doesn't get what they want, but I think that what we have to frame it as what's in the patient's best interest based on what the patient has communicated or tried to communicate. And a lot of times when I talk to people about this, they want to know, how do I prevent myself from getting sued? Mm-hmm. How do and, and the thing is, it's not about whether we feel good about what we did. It's whether we tried to find out what the patient wanted and did what the patient wanted. So, yeah, you could get sued if you resuscitate someone and the family said, well, you know, they 
they had a do not resuscitate order, you could get sued for that. You could get sued for not resuscitating someone because the family felt like, well, it works all the time on TV. What kind of healthcare providers are these that they didn't help? You, you could get sued because somebody just wants to sue you. Yeah, you can get sued for anything. And so the idea is, you know, you did the right thing. You did what helped the patient or what the patient wanted. And that's why you have insurance. I hate to say that because it sounds cold, but uh, but yeah, you making a mistake is not what gives rise to a lawsuit because we make mistakes every day and we get sued because of the outcome or what people thought we were doing was right. And EMS people don't get sued nearly as much as other healthcare providers, mm. but, uh, but we should be making decisions based on what do we know or what do we believe based on what people have told us is the patient's wishes and how can we document in, indeed that that's how we made our decision but we shouldn't make decisions based on you know will will, will they sue me for this that's a really or, good point and you know we're up on a hard out i think that's a great place I think to that's exactly where we should leave we should oh leave i have it. one more thing that I want i'm ready oh no go right ahead regardless of of what we've been taught we really do have to remember that death does not equal failure oh yes where oh, i want to talk about this. oh yeah. wow that's a yeah. great point all right next time yeah, we'll bring you back next time for yeah, that. Totally. That's that's absolutely. We'd like to bring you back more often because these are these are topics that I don't think get covered in a lot of FOMED, uh, you know, or in the podcast world where we have people who do have a knowledge of of the law and you know do understand the pre hospital role. Um, it's a pretty rare bird out there. So um, yeah, we'd love to have you back on for a couple other discussions. Oh, that um, would be great. I'd love it. You know, maybe come on for one of the uh, what the actual. Oh my God, the shows. what the actual would be great. Yeah, what the actuals. Uh, one of our shows where we pick out really ridiculous things that people have done from. You're like EMS. what the. <laughs> 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 but uh, we'd love to have you back. Um, we think this was great. Um, again, we're going to link to your website on the show notes. Um, we know you do training for agencies yeah. uh, on a variety of topics. So um, if that's something really that, interesting topics too, you guys should really check it out. Yeah, if that's something that you're interested in, please check out their website. They do some really great work. Kevney and Strieger. Uh, what's the uh, website? Believe it or not, it's KeveneyStrieger.com. Well, that's easy. Well, that's easy enough. Uh, we'll wink. Uh, we'll wink. We'll link that to the show notes. I'm uh, sorry about that. But um, Margaret, it's been great having you on. We hope you come back um, and talk about a bunch of other topics. And uh, just thanks for uh, coming on. That would be great. Can, can I say do better? Absolutely. Absolutely. She's so excited to say <laughs> I know. Hey, everybody, do better. That's yeah. a great way to end it. Uh, so for the overrun, I'm Dan. I'm Anna. And uh, thanks for listening.